Welcome everyone to the Football Odyssey Podcast. This is Aaron Harris. Today's episode, we have an interview with Jack Yeldon. Jack is the author of Collision of Wills, Johnny Unitas, Don Shula, and the Rise of the Modern NFL. The book looks back at the complex relationship between Baltimore Colts head coach Don Shula and his iconic quarterback, Johnny Unitas. Gildan tells his story against the backdrop of 1960s America, a time in which the country was changing and also a time in which football was changing as well. If you're a fan of history or football history in particular, I would highly encourage you to give this a read. And if you like this interview, feel free to share it on any platforms and subscribe to the podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at The Football Odyssey. With that being said, I hope you enjoy the interview. Jack, welcome to the Football Odyssey Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing very, very well. I'm excited to be here. I'm happy to have you on. I was really intrigued by the book because I thought it was a really unique topic. It's not one that I was familiar with and it wasn't really one that I had given much thought. But the way that you were able to blend in that era of Colts football and the way you were able to intertwine it with American history and with Baltimore's history, it felt really seamless at times, and it really was a job well done. So I'm glad that you took the time to be with us today. Well, thanks. I'm really glad that you enjoyed it so much. I mean, that's, uh, that's what you write them for. Absolutely. So typically it's a custom I have whenever I have a guest on the show. Can you begin by telling us when and how you developed a passion for the game of football? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I, I I don't know if I can totally pinpoint it, but I grew up in Baltimore, and, and uh, one of my earliest memories was the Colts playing the Cowboys in the Super Bowl. I was probably about five years old, something like that. I can remember you know, all the men of Baltimore, you know, just obsessively talking about the Colts. And I, I can remember uh, when Johnny Unitas was traded and uh, you know, the outrage of, uh, of the city at, at when he was traded and Joe Thomas was running the team for Robert Ursay and he kind of dismantled the entire team. And I can remember men, you know, all over the city at that time talking about about it, how outraged they were that the team was collapsing, and it was um, it was the first time that you know probably in 20 years or more that that, that the team wasn't good. So th- those were my earliest memories in life were of of uh, the, the the guys around here talking about about football. Now, what inspired you to write a book on such an underreported and and an almost forgotten topic, because as I mentioned earlier, I, I always knew Don Shula as the head coach of the Dolphins, which I imagine most people do. You know, he has the record for most wins. He has the undefeated season. Uh, and the only real association I had with him or familiarity I had with him as the Colts head coach was that he got upset by the Jets in Super Bowl three, which a lot of people acknowledge as the greatest upset in sports. So what was it that made you want to pursue a topic like this? Well, I, one thing that kind of interested me was how how things change. That was one thing that had always stuck with me. It's like, how do you go? Like, you think about the 58 Colts, which could have been easily the greatest football team ever assembled when you look at how good that offense was, how, how evenly spread out the talent was on that team. Um, the, the defense was a great intercepting defense. It was a, it, it was a really uh, – 
great team. And then you say to yourself, well, how does it go from being that? Like, how does it go out of being a dynasty? You know, and so I kind of started to think about that, you know, and, and then uh, what, what interested me was is that the Colts were so good over such a long period of, of time. You know, Unitas was a very young player when he won the 58 championship game, and everybody kind of acknowledged that he had elevated the game to something new, you know, to something it had never been before. So that that was really interesting to me. It was like how the team had changed over the years and how it went from being one thing to another. So that was kind of what it interested me. Like, where did Weeb Eubank go? I mean, how did a guy who who had created such a great team, how did he end up leaving? You know, questions like that. How'd they end up transitioning over to Shula? Who was he? Where did he come from? Um, and, and then, you know, you were talking about Shula's career, and you assumed his best years as in Baltimore. He had a higher percentage with the Colts than Vince Lombardi had with the Packers, and his winning percentage was higher than his winning percentage in Miami. I, he he just took the game to to unbelievable heights in in the safeties in Baltimore, and so all of those kinds of things intrigued me. It was uh, you know who were these people? Where did they emerge from? How did they be so good? What was their impact on this game for everybody? And their influence was gigantic. And, and when you decided uh, to write a book about this. Did you have certain topics outlined that you wanted to include and kind of base your interviews around those topics? Or did you yes. kind of have a general yes. did you have general questions for people who were first hand involved with the team and then kind of base your response from there? Well, I had certain topics. I mean that's a that's a very astute question, by the way. You, you know, because it kind of gets to the heart of good um good journalism, I think. You know, what I notice is when, when I read a book I, I'm always on the lookout to see whether or not the author has preconceived notions or he's trying to fit a, a square peg into a round hole. And in other words, he comes to the table with certain prejudices and then he he does backflips to kind to try to confirm what he wants it all to be. And I try not to do that. I, I hate it when I read it. And, and uh, when I'm writing, what I try to do is to um, – is to kind of say, okay, this is what I think it is, but I'm going to kind of go blank slate and I'm going to go and and uh, talk to everybody that I can find that touched this personally and start to put together something resembling the truth based on the evidence that I find. And that that's how I do it. So I go to like contemporary, you know, contemporary news pieces, everything that's written about it, books written about it, look at everything that I can and then talk to the people, you know, go directly to the people that were there and then start to ask them all, all the questions. And then, you know, whatever it is that I had as a preconceived notion, I let it go and I start at the story build out, you know, out of what the people tell me. And you would be surprised how different a story is, you know, when you go and you report it yourself versus what you think it is based on what you always believed it to be. It can be a vastly different thing. Yeah, it seems like that's one of the beautiful parts about writing when you speak with authors or you know, journalists. You know, when you have an idea for a story, you kind of go in with the intent that it's going to be this, but then it gradually evolves into something else as you go along through the process. And it can be just as revealing for the author as it can be for the reader. Oh, I mean, I think if it is just if it is highly revealing for the author, it's going to be a much better book for the for the reader. 
because it means that you are finding things that, that you didn't even know were out there. You didn't believe were out there. And that's what makes, you know, it's just like comedy, you know, like the essence of humor is to surprise the audience. I think that's the essence of great storytelling too. It's like to tell a story that's totally true, that's totally appropriate, but, but that somehow it still surprises you. Yeah, definitely. And in the book, I like how before you get to Shula and Unitas, you talk a lot, uh, about Weep Eubank in the early chapters. And to me, it, it brought back uh, the last season of Weep Eubank by Paul Zimmerman that I read earlier this year. And in particular, yeah, it, brought me to a convers- and it, it, it brought me to a conversation that, uh, that Dr. Z had with Carol Rosenblum. And in, in there, Rosenblum said that Weep was a great coach for building a team, but once it's built, you've got to take another look. And do you agree with that assessment based off the research you did for the book? No, I don't agree with that assessment at all. Now, nobody knew more about running a, a, a great football team than Carol Rosenblum. I mean, he had his horrible sides, but he was a brilliant football owner, probably the greatest owner in the history of the game. But, but uh, you know, that, that – that quote that you just gave to me, that sounds like it came right out of the mouth of Gino Marchetti, who, who said the, you know, very much the same thing. Gino Marchetti, they got Weeb fired, and he advised Rosenblum to fire him, and he then uh, advised Rosenblum to hire Shula. So I, yeah, I don't really agree with that assessment of Weeb. I think he kind of gets you know, looked at that way. But if you recall from my book, I kind of explained how the Colts dynasty under Eubank ended. And that was so in 58 and 59, they won the the, uh, back-to-back championships. Those were two very fine, very complete football teams. And then two things happened in 1960. Alan Amici tore his Achilles tendon, which really uh, destroyed the Colts running game. And then Unitas was kind of left vulnerable. You know, they had to rely on his passing, but no, no defense really believed that there was a credible running threat. So they got that little extra step in, in rushing Unitas. But the other and more important thing was, was that the AFL was formed. And when the AFL was formed and they were having their own draft, the Colts were losing their draft picks to the AFL and, and particularly in that first draft. So what happened was is Baltimore's general manager was compensated by by how much money, you know, how profitable the team was, and which was kind of like the New York Yankees model with their general manager. But so because of that, he watched every little nickel that they spent, and they weren't used to overspending for ballplayers. So when they had competition with the AFL, guess what? That those draft picks, like the Colts' first six or seven draft picks, the first year of the AFL was around, all signed with the AFL. So who did the Colts lose in that draft? Ron Mix, who ended up becoming a Hall of Fame tackle with the Chargers. He ended up he went to San Diego because he got he got more money there. The Colts also uh, uh, drafted Don Perkins, who ended up becoming. Uh, the, the great Dallas Cowboys running back. So they drafted him, but he went to Dallas instead of Baltimore because Dallas had to fight the AFL in, in, in the Dallas market. So the, the Colts had drafted a number of great, like all AFL players, um, uh, Hall of Famers, you know, in that draft. They all went to the AFL instead of, instead of Baltimore. So that wasn't Weed's fault. He was just as canny a judge of talent as he ever had been. He was replenishing the team. Perkins would have immediately uh, revived the running game. Ron Mix would have paired with uh, Jim Parker on the offensive line to protect Unitas and open up the, the running lanes. 
you know, but, but because uh, the general manager was cheap, all the players went, went to the AFL instead of Baltimore. And then whenever we get to the Shula Unitas era, you know, obviously we goes and there's, uh, you know, by that point, Shula had a few coaching stints. You point out that he was at the University of Kentucky, I believe, and then went to Detroit. Right. Um, right. Now, whenever they're, to, they're together, you point out in your book that it seems that this sort of turmoil begins uh, when Shula was basically run out of town by Unitas whenever they were scrimmaging together as teammates. And right. once he becomes once he becomes a coach, you discuss a lot of the similarities in their backgrounds. You know, you mentioned how they're both from Catholic families, how neither one of them wanted to follow in their father's footsteps as a blue collar worker. Uh and then you also point out some differences about, you know, the way they approach their job and just the way they kind of respond to the game. Do you believe that their feud was more due to the fact that they were too different or that they were too similar? Too similar. Way too similar. I think uh, now I think there were key, you know, just as you kind of pointed out a second ago, there were kind of key issues with both. But I think by far they were too, you know, much more too similar than too different. So the similarities, you know, the big similarity between them was just the cuckoo competitiveness that they both had. Raymond Barry said they he would be, had been in football. I don't know what was he in football like thirteen years as a player, or something like that. Then he went on to a long coaching career with Dallas, and and uh, and then later on was a head coach with the Patriots when it went to the Super Bowl. He said, "I was in pro football for something like fifty years, and in all my years of the game, I never met a single person who was as competitive as either Johnny Unitas or Don Shula. I mean, and he worked for Tom Landry, so think about that." He was. He said those two were just off the charts competitors. I think that was the biggest. That was the rub right there. They're competitive. They're competitive with each other. They were almost the same age, and I think they really competed for whose vision would run the team. I think that Unitas was more than happy to let Shula run the defense and respected uh, Shula's defensive knowledge and ability. But when it came to play calling, he didn't want any interference. He, you know, his his kind of feeling was, I'm Johnny Unitas. What is somebody going to teach me about how to be a quarterback or how to call a play? You know, and, and Shula, you know, Unitas kind of saw himself as the head coach of the offense, and Shula uh, obviously saw himself as the head coach of the team. And, and you talk a lot about Shula's um, approach to coaching. There was a lot of people that felt he was – way too hard. Unitas thought he just liked to scream and holler, whereas with Weep, he had more of a father figure as a coach. Do you think that Shula's aggressive coaching style was a genuine reflection of his personality and the way that he viewed the game or the way that coaching should be done? Or do you think he had to kind of adopt this method to gain respect from men that were his age and men that he had played with to kind of send a message that he wasn't going to be a player's coach or that he couldn't be pushed around? Well, I think both are true, to be honest with you. I think that, uh, first of all, they knew, like Charlie Winter was the defensive coordinator of the Colts under Eubank, and uh, he said, I knew this guy was a super smart guy, and he said, if I I ever get myself a head coaching job, I'm going to hire him as one of my assistant coaches. So they knew that he was highly intelligent, that he was a coaching material even when he was in his 20s and and still a player. So, uh, you know, but I, I think that, you're asking about the hard nose, like where did it come from? I mean, he was just, he was an old school guy, you know, he was brought up under uh, Paul Brown, you know, at first and, and, uh, 
And uh, he was just, uh, he was extremely intense. I, I don't think I put this in the book, but I remember reading, like, even as a child, he was so competitive. He played backgammon or something like that with his grandmother and lose. He would get so angry, like, flip the board over, go running out of the house and sit under the 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 uh, the porch for a couple hours, you know. He was just nutty, you know, that way. And even he told me, you know, he said uh, – he said that his personality was too much, you know, in, in that job. That he, he even knew that he was too intense and he was a little out of control. And then you talk a lot about United as a player, but I think one of the most intriguing parts of the book is when you discuss his personal life. And you, you spend a good portion of one chapter talking about it. And I think it kind of adds a little bit of complexity to his sort of all-American status when you talk about uh, his womanizing. And you talk a lot also, or list other men, you know, like Martin Luther King and JFK, who also had that same sort of tendency to seek sexual comfort outside of the home. So my, my question for you is, what do you think it is about men of this certain generation, or at least men at that point in time, who did have a belief in a higher moral character, but it didn't really apply to a chasing woman? Yeah, I mean, it's I got to tell you, it's as mysterious to me as it is to you, because my father was uh, was also a man of that generation. I think he was maybe one year older than, than Johnny Yu. I think he was born in 1932. I think Johnny Yu was born in 1933, something like that. So he was of the same generation, and we lived in Baltimore probably about 10 minutes from, from Johnny Yu. So we were living a very similar experience to, to his family. And my father was uh for at least as far as i know he was a very uh family oriented and very you know very devoted to my mother but it just seemed like the men of that era were more promiscuous than than uh than uh than this era for some reason and uh i don't really quite know why they were that way when i brought up jfk and martin luther king i was kind of referring to other very famous men you know and I think maybe part of their promiscuity of that era was is that it was also an explosion in, in uh, media, and uh, I think that that they became rock stars, you know, in politics, uh, in, uh, in 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 athletics. They were on the covers of magazines. They were on on television, and women threw themselves at, at those guys uh, in a lot of cases. I, I mean, I remember uh, uh, Johnny Yu's daughter uh, describing for me you know, how women would come and throw their chests and right in his, his eyeballs, you know, with his wife sitting right beside him. And, uh, you know, and then other people I talked to described much of the same behavior that women were constantly, you know, look on the lookout for him. And, and uh, you know, I mean, I guess the temptation was just too much for him. Now, speaking of media, in the beginning of the book, uh, you mentioned, and it's a funny line, but it also has a lot of truth to it, that networks spend more time investigating a running back's felony charge than the Iran nuclear weapons program. And you can't help but really kind of see the truth in that whenever you just have around the clock coverage, you know, whether it's ESPN or NFL Network that continues, and, you know, callous amounts of websites that continue just to track players in their personal life. So do you think that it was this era of Colts football that kind of showed how much in demand a star-studded team could be command from the public? Oh, there's no doubt about that. Like, uh, uh, 
some things that I found that were interesting to me, you know, like we kind of take things like Monday night football for granted. In fact, today, Monday night football is a lot. I, I don't know how old you are, Aaron, but, but when I was growing up, I, I mean, Monday night football was gigantic. It was such a big deal, you know, and it's, it's not that big anymore, but I, I think that the roots of, um, of football is like a prime time attraction attraction and a big, uh, a big uh, audience generator were with the Colts in the 60s. Uh, you, you could see like their, their games with the Packers were so highly anticipated. So what I was finding was is that, you know, uh, that, that their game, like their opener would be on Saturday night instead of on, um, instead of on Sunday, you know, like they would play Green Bay in the season opener or something like that. It would be on a Saturday night or something. I think there were other times when special games were played on Monday night, but, you know, before Monday night football, and uh, it was really because of the intensity, you know, the, the interest that, that the Colts uh, brought to football, the Colts and the Packers in particular. I mean, those two teams and the Bears, you could throw them in there too for a lot of the decade. They were so good. You, if you lost a single game, you, you got the feeling that you were going to drop out of the race to make it. And there weren't any um, – there weren't wild cards and things like that at that time in the beginning, you know, and so it, it, the interest in seeing what would happen as Baltimore and Green Bay would and Chicago for the most part. And, and then later on uh, the Rams, they would fight it out and fight it out and fight it out to see who would win that divisioning and go into the postseason because it was do or die. And, you, you know, with Lombardi on the other sideline, if you lost one game, two games, whatever, you had a good chance of, of not making the postseason at all. So as you could see, like in 1967, the Colts had the best record in football and didn't lose a single game until the last day of the season and then did not make the postseason, <laughs> did not make the postseason. So you could just see how crackling intense, you know, intense it was. There's nothing like it today. Yeah, and I'm 25 years old. So for me growing up, I've kind of have always had this sort of access to player information. So, and, you know, Monday Night Football was still – I don't think it carries as much prestige now as Sunday Night Football does. But in terms of having that sort of, I, I guess, water-cooled game that everybody can talk about the day after and really just kind of analyze every single aspect of the game as opposed to, you know, what what else is going on in the league? You know, it's like everybody has their own thing that they want to follow, but it's so much easier to get information about every player, you know, with fantasy obviously has the contribution right. to that as well. So, so much for me, it's always kind of, yeah, it's always, it's very interesting to hear people talk about how they really had to seek out information and really rely on journalists and television journalists for information. Whereas now it, it just feels like it's getting well, it was, it, it was a very big deal. Like, so for instance, on Monday night football, you had these three guys, I'm sure you're familiar with them, Cosell and Frank Gifford and yeah. John Meredith that ran the show. And they were just so exciting. I mean, you know, I used to think, well, wow, you know, Howard Cosell shows up at all the big events. And then it occurred to me, they are big events because Howard Cosell was showing up. He didn't go to the big events. They were perceived as big events because he was there. He he made them he made them exciting. You know, he was like a one-man walking circus. He, uh, everyone hated him. Everyone loved him. But everybody <laughs> wanted to hear what he was going to have to say. And then, as you correctly noted, it was like at, at halftime, he would show the highlights from the games the day before. And that was a very big deal. That was your only chance to see to see that during the week. You know, you didn't have the Internet and, 
and all this access to to the to the footage and he would you know he would take you through all the week's games and he, he was he was fantastic at it you know and they used to have shows like this week in football or uh yeah. uh there was also like uh with mel allen there was this week in baseball i mean I, I couldn't wait for those shows, and you know it was your one chance to see see the players from all over America and what they were doing. So it, it was a different era, you know. I'm 55, you know, not 25, 55, and you know, and, and in that era, it, it, things seemed much bigger than they seem today. Well, and it's funny you put it you put it that way because I go on YouTube a lot and I watch a lot of these old uh, you know this week in pro football or uh, you know game of the week. And I see really like actual productions. You know, today you see highlights, but whenever you watch anything from NFL films or Blair Motion Pictures, you know, in the early '60s, you really see how they took a game like this and they really crafted it into a story. And I think that's oh, something that I, I mean, wish I, I kind of had exposure to today. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I really miss that because those things were really well produced. Like today, everything almost has like a YouTube feel to it. Like anybody can be an announcer. Anybody can be, you know, a broadcast star or whatever. But in those days, you go back and you look at those things. Now, they weren't the most expensive sets or the most expensive productions either. But on the other hand, the the announcers, they all had rich, you know, good voices. They were uh, all uh, attired in jackets and ties. They were all highly educated and intelligent uh, men, very articulate. I, I mean, to me, it's like the, the level of, uh, of uh, education and intelligence and communication out of the announcers has plummeted, you know, in, in the decades since those old uh, Blair or NFL Films productions that you were referencing. And it's really, uh, it's sad to see, you know, that like the, all of the uh, old um, – standards have really sunk much lower from from those days to this yeah and it definitely seems more subtle when we're talking about announcers um after i finished the book i went through and watched a couple of the games that you referenced and the one that was most accessible was super bowl three and i'm listening to kirk dowdy narrate the game and i'm really just impressed he's, he's able to have like like such moments of excitement but it's very um, you know, discipline. You know, it doesn't go all over the place and really take away from the action on the field. And something else. Well, you're a very is, bright young guy, and because I love how you use the word discipline, because that's so accurate. That's such an accurate description of of the difference. So instead of it just being like he was a fan who was attending, he was a journalist telling you, you know, reporting to you the game as as it was happening. So you know, like you look today with this COVID and the stadiums being empty and they're piping and uh, uh, cheering and you, you've got fake fans, you know, sitting in the seats and things like that. It, it's so antithetical to what those guys would have believed. They were reporters. They were showing up and they were there to tell you, to tell you what was happening, like a, like a witness on the scene, you know? So all of this fake stuff would have been very unappealing to them. You, I think you hit the nail right on the head. Now, when you, because you go into really great detail when you're recapping the games, and I was curious, what kind of resources did you use to, you know, resurrect these games and to really get use of the action? Did you go through newspapers or radio broadcasts, or did you go to NFL Films Archives and check that out? Well, uh, I, same as you, let me put it to you that way. I went to YouTube and found the old films. I, um, I went back and read uh, varying newspaper accounts, and uh, 
and in that way I could put it together. So what I was looking for, like from the films, I was looking to have my own view of everything that I could describe from. From the newspapers, I was looking for quotations. I was looking for what the reporters of that era found to be interesting or, you know, what, what they uncovered that might have been lost to history, you know, what got reported that next morning and then forgotten forevermore, you know, things like that. So I have to say, I mean, I'd be curious to know what you thought of the game description because um, uh, that I wrote because, uh, you know, I thought that was some of the most fun writing in the book was to go back in and, you know, and kind of recreate it on the page, you know, like an artist painting it on a canvas. What, did, did you like those descriptions? Yeah, I loved them. In particular, I like I like the way in which you were able to give action, then give background, give action, give background. Like when you were talking about, I think it was the 1964 championship game between the Colts and the Browns, and you were talking about Frank Ryan. I had no idea who Frank Ryan was, and frankly, I didn't even know there was a quarterback since Otto Graham who had won a championship in Cleveland. But to hear you talk about how everybody thought that he was going to be some great quarterback because he had a Ph.D. in mathematics so he could see the geometry of the game on the field, it didn't exactly <laughs> turn out to be a stellar that way but it ended up working well for them. Uh, but, yeah, You're I right. like in the way which you kind of split up action, background, action, and background. Well, he was the first one to think how how uh, uh, absurd that those descriptions were of him, you know, and he, he was a fascinating man. And and But what, what the reality of it was is that he was a very intelligent man and he wasn't making calculations on the field, but what he was doing was he was – he was very astute in figuring out what the defenses were going to do, you know, just kind of like Johnny, you would do. He was like, okay, well, they're very paranoid about Jim Brown right now. And I can see they're cheating in, you know, everything in football is cheating. It's like, if you, if you cheat one step in the wrong direction in order to cover up for a weakness that opens up uh, the opportunities for the quarterback. And Frank Ryan was very good at, at recognizing that in, in that game and, and in others. So it was really, uh, really interesting. Johnny Unitas really, um, he really uh, uh, respected Frank Ryan. Frank Ryan kind of goes down in history as a blase, not, not, not much, but boy, I mean, you know, in that day and age, I mean, he he had some great games, and he was a he was a very good, uh, very good play caller, I thought, and certainly in the '64 championship game, it was his brain that made made the difference for them. And it makes you kind of wonder, you know, if he was matched with a guy like Bill Walsh, who at the time, whenever he came into football, wasn't concerned at all about the long bomb. He wanted the long, short, meticulous passes. You kind of wonder, you know, would he have had in that system really a much different career or a much better career, I should say? Well, I don't think so, because I think he had accuracy issues all along. You know, I think that was kind of his undoing, although he did have some really, if, if you went back and looked at the stats, he had some really great seasons. Even after he, his arm was ruined, he had some great seasons. Uh, really, you know, a lot of touchdown passes and things like that. But um, I don't think that he was super accurate. You know, like kind of Bill Walsh's system depended on on that accuracy. And you, you look at those Joe Montana passes, and, I mean, he was just so on the money, you know, every time. And I think that, that Frank Ryan, for instance, one of his best receivers was Gary Collins, and I interviewed him. And he really complained about about Frank Ryan's accuracy. So I don't know if he would have been great in that Bill Walsh system, even though I know what you're saying is, well, that system should have helped him because it was more 
about shorter passing and thing, things like that. But believe it or not, that shorter pass passing has to be extremely accurate, you know, because what they're looking to do in a system like that is to hit the seams and then get yards after catch. So they're trying to bring down the odds of uh, disaster, you know, like a turnover, which in football is really as key to, as, as key to a victory as, um, as a touchdown is. You know, so they would right. look to bring down the odds on the turnover, but then what they were hoping to do were to hit the seams in the defense and get big, big yardage out of it, even though the, the pass didn't travel very far, you know, things like that. And I, But that yeah. requires a lot of accuracy. And now when, when you talk about greatness, I also think, too, of the Colts-Packers rivalry, which I had no idea was a rivalry, and but it makes a lot of sense, too. I mean, for two old classic NFL teams with two great quarterbacks, two great coaches, and two great defenses. And I see a lot of interesting comparisons to this uh, rivalry throughout NFL history, you know, where a great team just can't get past a greater team. You know, you think of Peyton Manning going up against the Patriots of Brady. You think of the Raiders in the 1970s going up against Pittsburgh. So for me, I'm kind of curious on what your take is as to why the Packers were able to, like, what fa- What do you think gave them that constant edge over it? Do you think it was the experience of Lombardi over Shula? Do you think maybe they just had better talent on the field? What do you think it was? Well, it, it was actually a couple of things, but let me let me correct one or two things that you said there. It wasn't two great coaches. It was three great coaches because the rivalry began with Weeb Eubank and, and Lombardi mm. and Unitas. So it, it really began there, and it really didn't even begin in Green Bay. It began in New York, you know, with the Giants when Lombardi was the head of the offense there. So uh, there's no doubt in my mind, you know, it, and it was a closer rivalry than what people think. I mean, when Eubank was the only coach in history that had a 500 record against Vince Lombardi, he was the only coach that didn't have a losing record against him. And uh, and in the early part of the rivalry, the Colts dominated it. And then when Shula came, you know, and only Shula was only in his second year, the Colts beat the Packers twice and uh, to go to the championship game. And then uh, the Colts uh, had some epic games with them. Uh, afterwards, like in, in 65, you talk about that one postseason game where Tom Matty played quarterback. The Colts lost mm-hmm. to the Packers three, three times that season, including that extra game in the postseason. But that postseason game really, by all rights, was won by Baltimore. You know, a, a very bad field goal was called good. And so the Packers went to the championship game and the, the Colts stayed home. But, but uh, really, the Colts should have won the game. So that, that was a very intense rivalry, I, I think. And I think there are probably some historians who would agree with me that that was the the most intense uh, football rivalry in the history of the NFL. Yeah, and I actually that was another game that I got to watch on YouTube where Tom Matty was quarterbacking. And right. it's interesting to say too, and because you also point out in the book that Bart Starr got hurt in that game too. So it's right, in the second, anti- I think the first play of the game. Yeah, and it's really interesting to to see like, you know, that rivalry has like a lot of, you know, it seems ups and downs and a lot of chapters, but you know, you never really hear about it anymore. And obviously I think a well, lot of here's, here's the thing about it. it. First of all, the, the, uh, the amount of hall of famers in that rivalry was off the charts. Then you look at the three head coaches who were involved and you could make a, a, a case for each one of those three, that he was the greatest head coach in the history of football. You know, you could only like maybe sneak one or two other names onto that list. Like, like Bill Walsh or uh, uh, maybe Chuck Knoll or, you know, I mean, not, there aren't too many others that you could, you could put up there with those three with Lombardi and uh, Weeb and Shula. 
And so, uh, you know, it, that's what made it so great. So I think it was a closer rivalry than what it appears by, by one loss, number one. And number two, I think, you know, you're saying, what was the difference? I think that there was a razor-thin difference between them. I think probably that difference was a little bit that Bart Starr and uh, and Lombardi were a little bit more on the same page than Unitas and uh, Shula. I think that might have been the razor-thin difference between those those two teams, but the talent was certainly equal. And in some case, you know, I mean, whatever the Packers had, the Colts had Unitas, and Unitas was the single greatest weapon in football, I think, for, you know, maybe all the generations. And also, too, when you're talking about talent, I also like how you gave a little background on uh, Jack Manissi. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but. Who are you? Jack Manissi. Jack Manissi. Yeah, yeah, he was he was the the uh, the Green Bay. Uh, he was kind of like their de facto GM. Yeah, and he was a very young guy, and he was he was a genius. So by the time uh, by the time Shula, or, I mean I'm sorry, by the time Lombardi got to Green Bay, and Lombardi was chosen by Jack Vanessi also. By the time he got there, they had tons of potential Hall of Famers on on the roster that had never been developed properly. So when Vince came in, he had all these high draft picks that were very well chosen by Venisi, and then he knew how to to use them properly. So that's a big difference between a guy like Shula, a guy like Lombardi, and a guy like Weed Eubank. Weed, like you said, you so accurately said earlier, was a builder. You know, he came into two franchises, the Colts and the Jets, that were bankrupt, and he built them from nothing. And and uh, Lombardi and Shula. Both came in the franchises that had lots and lots of talent there waiting for a decent coach. Now, when it comes to football history, you know, ever since I've got, I, ever since I developed uh, an appreciation and a passion for it, I've always been amazed at how football always seems to be able to reinvent itself or, you know, at the very least adopt the game to keep pace with the changing audience and the changing times. And a big portion of your book is talking about changing times for, you know, cultural and social norms. And one in particular that I liked was we were talking about the quarterback when we were talking about the game, because, you know, you mentioned how the quarterback became the sort of tough as nails, you know, cerebral icon that led his team to victory. And you go on to talk about how in today's game, you know, it's very much uh, a sensational position. You know, I think you used the analogy about Tom's in Tom Brady's America, there was reality TV and virtual reality. And in United States America, there was only reality. So how do you kind of see, like, when it came to Unitas, how did you see the growing importance of the quarterback position as a reflection of changing times in America? Like, did you see any sort of change in, like, the viewer that was able to identify with the quarterback? Yeah, I mean, I think that Unitas showed how cinematic that that one position was, and it, it made it kind of unique. I mean, the only thing similar to it in sports would be heavyweight champion. You know, because the quarterback is kind of that singular figure, especially in the television era. And then in Johnny Unitas's case, he kind of was like a like a John Wayne figure or a um, you know a Gary Cooper figure. He was just this virtuous man who stood alone against all this danger. You know, and it, it was uh, was very appealing to American men of that era. You know, it's like you looked at football and it was like, hey, you know what? That guy, he's he's really got his ass on the line out there for us, you know? It, 
I, I mean, he, he appeared to, to stand in there in all that danger, you know, and he was doing it for the Baltimore flag. He, he, it, it had that kind of feel to it. And uh, I think that's how he kind of invented the, the quarterback position, but also by extension, he invented modern football in, in that way. That's, you know, that's what football became after him. Uh, it became all about that man and the, the dangers he had to weather. You know, the idea that Tom Brady lived in a world of virtual reality and United lived in a world of reality. I think that the dangers for a quarterback today are still real, but they're a lot less uh, intense than they were in United's age. You know, and you, you, I mean, to compare Tom Brady and Johnny Unitas, for instance, you can't do it because Johnny Unitas was getting the living crap beat out of him, you know, every Sunday, way worse than anything Tom Brady or Brett Favre, you know, ever had to, to cope with. Even though it's still a scary game, it's still a very physical game, I'm not taking anything away from those guys. But, I, I, I mean, just so you look at the blockers themselves, like the, the tackles and how they can block today versus – Versus back then, it's it's night and day. I mean, the the passers today get much you know much more time to throw the ball than in Unitas's era. I mean, John, you know, one of the things I tried to do in the book was catalog his his injury history through the years. And I mean, you know, punctured lungs, broken vertebrae, um, uh, broken fingers, bad backs, arm miseries. You know, he he was. You think of him as being so tough and, and so durable, but he was playing through incredibly bad injuries. You know, he was already not himself probably by the early 60s. You know, so, I, I mean, he was still great. He still dominated the league through it, but but the injuries were, you know, he was still a, a fraction of what he had been earlier, you know, like in the late 50s. Yeah, and it seems that when we talk about quarterbacks from different era, it seems that if anybody sides with anybody, you know, from more than two decades ago, it, it has to do because of the physicality of the game, the way it was played back then. Uh, I have an uncle who is in his 70s, and a few years ago I was talking to him about who he thought the best quarterback of all time was, and he would still say it was Johnny Unitas, simply because the game he played back then, number one, he did kind of pioneer that sort of commando quarterback position, but because the guy in, in that game was able just to sustain injury and just be able to you know continue to call his own plays be able to have all that pressure on him and still come out on top uh, yeah i mean your uncle's right on the money i mean you know i think i said something in the book like it's like like playing chess with with uh you know like violent marauders trying to throttle you while, you, while you're thinking of your of your move you know that that's yeah. what it was i mean there was nobody to give you advice in your ear or tell you what to do i mean he was out there uh, on his own and uh, I, I mean he was super strong super uh brave and and he was extraordinarily cerebral all at the same time it was a really intriguing uh combination of traits and i think that the you know the american people loved it and i think it's even though it's not quite that anymore i think that our belief that it's that is is what still attracts us to the game yeah i would say so and it's and it's funny too because when you look at you know, football, you know, before probably 1950, well, I would even say into the 1950s, it seems like halfbacks were the position where everybody glorified. I mean, you had, you know, Sid Luckman that was, uh, you know, a quarterback that everybody had appreciated what he was as, you know, kind of like the first T formation quarterback. But it seemed, you know, a guy like Frank Gifford, you know, in the 50s was still kind of the, the, per the person that people wanted to see more so than, you know, Charlie Connolly. You know, so it, it's, it's interesting 
interesting to see how United's kind of transcended that. And a lot of it, I'm sure, is to, you know, television, you know, being able to focus in on him as well. But to see that transition between, you know, who receives kind of the accolades and who kind of drives the game was really, it must have been really great to see. Yeah, it was really interesting. And, and the one thing I would say is, believe it or not, it wasn't even the halfback. It was the fullback that was the that was yeah, the guy that sure. got the attention in those days. You know, and, and today, fullbacks don't barely even exist in football anymore. I think the Ravens were one of the few teams that even used one. But, uh, you know, in those days, you had Alan Amici and Jim Taylor and, and of course, uh, Jim Brown. Uh, the uh, Ernie Davis that came out of college but never played. He was a proto prototypical of uh, fullback um you know those were the guys that got everybody's attention they were they were gigantic you know they were fast and uh and they were they were really fascinating you know and the, the public loved them and whenever we're talking about baltimore you know throughout the book you talk a little bit about how baltimore various points was a city in decline because it was kind of stuck in the state of austerity with industries moving out and there was, you know, tense race relations going on. But whenever the Colts were playing, everybody kind of forgot their disposition in life and really rallied around it. And to me, it's kind of reminiscent of like, you know, other small market football teams. And it's also reminiscent in a way of, you know, what you hear from, you know, small towns in Texas when they rally around like a high school team, they're really given that sort of reprieve. So when it comes to professional football, what is it that you think gives, you know, a small market team that's sort of intimate feeling with its fan base to the point where they can kind of make them forget about their troubles and really find something to unite around. Well, I think, I mean, I hate to say it like this, but I think there was a racist element to all of that in the sense that uh, in those days, those heroes really looked like the town, you know, I mean, uh, Johnny, and I mean, look, I, I mean, let me see how I can say this without sounding, sounding like a terrible guy, but look at how di- different Johnny Unitas and Lamar Jackson are, you know, and, and they're, they're so different looking. You, you can see that they're come from completely different, different cultures, you know, and I think in, in Unitas's day, you were talking about a city that was a majority white culture and they loved the fact that they had this, this guy who was, you know, he was one of us. He came from, he came from, you know, Lithuania and he, you know, he, he, he was a white European immigrant, like, like the majority of the culture was, you know, and then Gino Marchetti was like that. Raymond Barry was like that. You know, they were all, you know, part of that. And I think that that was part of what they wanted to see. I think a guy like Lamar Jackson, uh, who's in many ways as revolutionary today as Unitas was in his day, a, a magnificent player. He, he's a magnificent, uh, young person and he very well represents, uh, the world today, you know, with the changing, the changing views of, of race in America and race relations, and, you know, and his, his, uh, his brilliance and his brilliant athletic ability, both are changing the position. Um, you know, I mean, I think in, in their day, the Colts really represented the Baltimore of that era. I think in, in his day, Lamar Jackson represents the Baltimore of this era uh, with its different demographics and, and so forth. But, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think that football works for those towns because uh, because it's the, the, the men are so appealing. You know, the game is so appealing. It feels like there's a real a real sense of like these guys are almost like the defenders of your city. You know, it really gives you that yeah. feeling. 
And I think that that's what they appeal to. And then you think of a place like Baltimore, and it's an East Coast city, but we don't have the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You know, we don't have the the the, the New York Ballet or you know or the Opera. You know, things like that. I mean, football is our thing here. You know, we're this was always a tough town with tons of people working in the factories, and and football is just highly appealing to those types of guys. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I don't want to put a damper on this conversation, but I'm actually a Steeler fan. So whenever oh, I – Okay. Whenever I – go, go ahead. I love the city of Pittsburgh, number one. And, uh, and of course, I hate that team as a, as a Baltimorean. <laughs> But I but I love I love that city and and uh, you got to respect the team and you got to you got to respect the passion of its fans. Yeah, and that's something I've been there I think three times now and I was actually there last year whenever they played the Rams and it's sort of a similar situation I think where you have Pittsburgh that does have like a, a little bit of an art scene you know it does have uh, some you know, like a little bit of a music scene, I guess you could say, but primarily, you know, it's primarily based around Pittsburgh. You know, it's a sports town, obviously, you know, the Penguins have a good following, you know, the Pirates right. still have some, some, somewhat of a fan base, but really the town really revolves around Pittsburgh Steelers football. And yeah, really, like, yeah. that's, something that's, so, that's something that's so unique when you can go there and really just find a, a common identifier. And I imagine it's well, a lot of the same way with Baltimore. It's the same exact thing. I mean, imagine, like, I mean, don't you think, like, some of these Polish, uh, you know, football players and Czechoslovakian and, and uh, you know, whatever, these Eastern European guys playing football, these big corn-fed guys on the line, you know, don't they seem just like steel workers to you? Because <laughs> they do to me, and I think they do to, yeah, the, to the Pittsburghers, and they do to the other Baltimoreans and the, and the Clevelanders and, you know, and the Green Bay guys, you know. They, they seem so – to write for those kinds of cities. Yeah, definitely. And now while we're on the topic of the city, obviously Baltimore left under very um, – I'm trying to figure out how to, way to put this uh, respectably. Very clandestine situation. You know, they just took off over overnight. You know, everybody was rightfully angry that, you know, Jim Irsay just up and moved. Well, it was actually Robert, Robert Irsay. Jim Irsay Robert was just a young guy at that time. His his father moved the team. Robert Irsay. And right. did, you, did you notice a different attitude when there was no longer an NFL team? Because I know there was a few pro, pro, pro football teams. I know the CFL had the, the Baltimore Stallions, I think, for one year. Right, but right. did you notice something different about the city when there was no NFL oh, team? Yeah. I mean, all the joy was gone. I mean, you know, so much of the ego of the – of the city was wrapped up in that team and they had the Orioles and we love, you know, we love the Orioles and the Orioles really gained in, uh, in popularity during the Ursa years because he ran such a shoddy organization here. And so the Orioles had been, had been great, um, you know, for a lot of years. And then they started to really get that same following like the Colts used to have. But, uh, you know, the joy had left Baltimore. Baltimore was always a football town, and there's, you know, the DNA of that went from the '60s on through my, you know, years. And uh, and when football left, it was just never the same. Some of us rooted for the Eagles. Some poor misguided souls rooted for the Redskins. Um, you know, and then other people picked up uh, various teams, but but it was never never the same as you know when the Colts were here. I mean, the, the town, it was like going into a 13-year depression. Yeah, that's that's a terrible feeling. And 
it's something too that I think when you look at uh, when you look at like a relocation, like there, there was actually a. Did you ever read the League by David Harris? The League by David Harris. No, I read John Eisenberg's book, The League, but I, I didn't read David Harris's. If you have a chance to check check that book out, I would highly recommend it. And it's really it gives, it paints a picture of the you know what it was like in the NFL boardroom whenever Pete Rozelle came into office, and you know Joe yeah. Rosenblum is a prominent you know figure in the book. Oh, and yeah. ultimately, I mean, he, and ultimately, it goes around like the legal disputes and kind of like the interleague turmoil that was happening you know at the executive level, and ultimately what would build up to the Raiders leaving Oakland and going to Los Angeles. Right, and, and that opened the door for the Colts leaving. Exactly. Yeah. And that's something he talks about in the book. And you, you really kind of see, you know, moving a franchise, you know, yeah, th- there is a lot of money at stake. But, you know, it seems like and you point this down in your book, you know, it's like if someone offers you a new stadium, you take it. You know, there's not really a second a second guess anymore. No, they don't give it, you know, a hoot about the fans and and all of that. It's like they're just looking for the for the better deal, and they, you know, they became uh, they became mercenaries. I mean, Baltimore was really uh, look. Baltimore made its mistakes in that deal. There's no doubt about it. But really, they got they got gypped. You know, they got rooked in the in the thing because they played a prominent role in really taking the league out of the shadows. I mean, it was the first city that really embraced football with the zeal that you know that we take for granted today you know that was really born here and then uh and then when push came to shove they just let them walk right out of town and and then the worst part was is that they didn't give them anything new yeah so it's and it's disappointing too i mean obviously you know everybody now is so used to having what you call them like roman palaces now um and i i think also that's something that, you know, obviously the fans want. I, I'm assuming the players love it too. But you, whenever you watch those old games, like I remember watching a, a game on YouTube between, I think it was a playoff game between the Steelers in 1976 and uh, Baltimore when Burt Jones was the quarterback. And you see everybody, you know, making diving catches in the dirt. Everybody just getting tackled to the ground with dust flying up. It just feels yeah. like football. You know, it's not something oh, really it, anybody it really does. And I have to say, football really should be played in baseball stadiums. I mean, that's where it was so fun and so aesthetically pleasing, you know, at playing football in Wrigley Field and in, uh, you know, uh, in, in Fenway Park and Yankee Stadium and, and Memorial Stadium. I mean, there was just something about football in a baseball stadium that was really uh, quirky and fun. Now, what are some uh, things that really surprised you when you were writing this book? Was there anybody that you interviewed that didn't really turn out to be as you expected them to be or certain stories that you were kind of taken off by? Well, I think the one thing that really shocked me was was Unitas' struggles during his career. You know, his image today, you know, that guy in the statue and that that perfection uh, uh, kind of figure, but it was far from that. And he had three years in the prime of his career when he threw more more interceptions than touchdowns. And, uh, you know, he had struggles very early on with Shula, you know, for for control. And uh, Shula, I, I, you know, I mean, he didn't say this to me, but you could see he didn't really exactly trust him. I think he felt that he, he flung the ball up there too much. He didn't like his play calling. He didn't like uh, his choices of where he threw the ball very often. And, uh 
you know, so it, it wasn't all just an easy glide for, for Unitas like people think it was. You know, you, you go back and you look at the at the statistics, you know, the yards thrown, the, the career touchdowns, you know, and things like that, the big victories. And you tend to think that a guy like that never has any problems. But, he, you know, he had some, you know, he had some major career problems, you know, not just when he was old and injured and used up, but right in his prime. So that that was really shocking to try and start to unravel it and understand it. And whenever you completed the book, do you feel like you came away learning more about Don Shula or more about Johnny Madison? Huh, that's a really interesting question. I think, I, but I'm gonna say I think Johnny Unitas. Well, it's pretty, it's pretty close. But I think Johnny Unitas because I did understand a lot more about his personal life and things like that. I don't think I had ever read a book where anybody really kind of got to the personal Johnny Unitas that well. And I don't know that I did either. But I do think I, I, I did a lot. You know, I went a lot for, further than most people did, and I got to him a lot more than most people ever did. And whenever you spoke to Don Shula, did he talk about any sort of mistakes or lessons that he took away from his time in Baltimore that translated to his success in Miami? I know earlier you mentioned how he was you know, maybe too hard whenever he was. Yeah, I mean, Baltimore. I think that was it. You know, he he bristled when I said to him that I thought he wasn't as intense in Miami as he was in Baltimore. You know, but I, I think on some level he would have agreed with that. He took a little bit of the edge off. Like one of the old newspaper guys said to me, it was unbelievable, you know. It was like the difference. We all, you know, when the Colts went to play the Dolphins time, he was like, uh, you know, um, he, you know, he was like wearing sunglasses. He was tan. He was like a totally different guy. He was, you know, happy and you know, and uh, and much more relaxed than he had ever been in Baltimore. They described it as night and day thing. So the players in Miami were all like, geez, this guy is is cuckoo intense. And then everybody in Baltimore, who knew him in Baltimore was like, boy, he's really changed. He's a lot, he's a lot less intense than he used to be. <laughs> so that was, that was a funny thing to kind of view. Yeah. And it's funny whenever you see him on the sidelines, you know, during the you know late seventies, early eighties, and you see him, he's got you know his aviators on, he's got his orange V-neck sweater on the sidelines. The guy right. looks like he was made for Miami. It's it's a, it's really right. funny to see him. You wish you wish that coaches would be a lot. I'm, I'm not sure really what the dress code. I know they had to wear like you know their athletic wear, but you kind of wish they would make some more dressier clothing options for coaches on the sidelines because there's something like you mentioned earlier about seeing a coach in just a slick suit that really just makes the game more appealing. Well, I, I think too, you know, that that in those days when they were wearing the jackets and ties, they had the the look and feel of uh, of top level businessmen or politicians. So as I made the point in the book, uh, two coaches were considered by both the major parties as potential uh, top of the ticket guys. So the Democrats. Yeah. Uh, Bear Bryan had uh, had nominating votes for both president and vice president in 1968 uh, by the Democrats and the Republican Party seriously considered drafting Vince Lombardi to be vice president for Richard Nixon. So I, I think uh, uh, that the, in those days, football coaches were looked at, at as a very different thing than they are today. And I think part of the magic in that was was in the jacket and tie. Yeah, I, I agree, because whenever I watch them on YouTube, it kind of elicits a certain feeling of just sophistication. And, you know, I think 
in a way, like kind of because when you see big shoulder pads and you see kind of the dirt on everybody, you know, that adds kind of to the the masculine nature of the game. But when you see a coach on the sideline, that to me adds to the cerebral part of it. Oh, I, I, I definitely think so. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Now, hypothetically, if you were going to write another football book, you know, maybe even like a sequel to this, uh, what, like, what topic would you want to write about? I'm not sure. You know, I, I love football, and I'd like to get back to writing another football book. Right now, I'm finishing up. I'm putting the finishing touches on a book I wrote about about horse racing, and about the very famous uh, racehorse spectacular bid. And that was an unbelievable backstory to that to that uh, to that racehorse. But uh, I'd I'd like to get back to football, but I, I really don't have a topic in mind yet. But uh, you know, football is a natural fit for me. I played football in high school, and and uh, I, I love the game. So I, I'd like to get back to writing about it again. Would you would you think you would keep it within Baltimore? No, I probably. In fact, I probably would not. I, I just thought that I like that topic because those two players, you know, kind of crackled with import to me. You know, they seemed like national figures and they had a story that that was right out there in the open, but that no one had ever really accurately reported before. And so it appealed to me for those reasons. And, uh, you know, and I, I, that's the type of story that I that I like, something where people think they know it, but there are new things to find. And that's, you know, I'd like to find one like that. It, wouldn't have to be in Baltimore. Great. Now, just to close off with this, uh, Don Shula passed away recently, earlier this year, and then next Friday will be 18 years since United passed away. So if you were talking to, you know, a younger fan, you know, a real fan of today, how would you explain the contribution that these two icons made to the modern NFL? Well, in my opinion, those two, plus Vince Lombardi, plus Weeb Eubank, they uh, they invented modern football. So the game that we have today, uh, the, the obsession with it, the national importance of it, that game didn't exist before those guys came into the picture. So even though you had brilliant tacticians like uh, Paul Brown or even like someone like Sid Gilman, I, I think that these were the guys that really made football what it was. You know, it, it was because of the, the intensity of their competitive natures the, the competition between the teams that they brought to the table, the contrast of the personalities, the intelligence, the, you know, it's like all of those things, the toughness, the authenticity, as we discussed, those are the things that made football what it is today. So that's, that's how I would describe it to someone from today who, who didn't live through it. Wonderful. All right, Jack. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. I really enjoyed speaking with you. And again, I think this is a great book you wrote. And I think anybody, you know, who is interested in football and even, you know, doesn't have as much of an interest in football would enjoy it. So I would encourage everybody to go out and buy it. Well, thanks, Aaron. I really, I really enjoyed meeting you too. You, you asked great questions and it was a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Hopefully we get to have you back when you write that next football book. Yeah, I, I would enjoy it. Have a wonderful evening, Aaron, and I'll see you soon. You too, Jack. Bye-bye.